Scott's new pussycat. Whoa, 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 whoa. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You probably know if you've been listening to me through any length of time is that I live with three cats. They are my step cats. I inherited them when I married my wife. She had these three cats long before she met me and if there was ever a choice of me or the cats, uh, let's just say I would have to have my bags packed long before they'd have to have their kitty litter packed. And I've learned a lot about cats in general by living with three cats because believe it or not, and as a non-cat person before this, I don't know that I had a full appreciation of this, these three cats have very distinctive personalities and they have all the same kind of quirks and likes and dislikes that a human might. So when I came across a book by internationally renowned scholar in the field of evolutionary biology, Jonathan Lossus, who says that he's actually analyzed the evolution of cats, especially how they communicate, I was absolutely fascinated and I've been reading a great deal about the cat's meow how cats evolved from the savannah to your sofa and I am just thrilled to be joined by Professor Jonathan Lossus, its author. Professor Lossus, thanks for joining me on the radio. Well, thanks so much for having me on it. So I know that initially you were studying lizards and that area of animals. What prompted your interest in cats specifically? Well, so I've spent my career studying lizards. It turns out that they are a great organism to understand how how the world has become so full of, of animals. They're survivors since the age of dinosaurs. There are 10,000 species of, of them. They're great, they're great animals to study. But at the same time, I've always loved cats. Ever since I was five and we went to the animal shelter to, uh, to get a, stray, uh, a rescue cat for my father. So I've been crazy about cats. Um, but I never, it never occurred to me to do anything scientifically with them because I wanted to study animals, see what they do out in the wild. And anyone who's tried to follow a cat around to, to see what it gets up to knows how hopeless an enterprise that is. As soon as the cat figures out what you're doing, which is right away, it sh- gives you the shake and moves into a bush and disappears. So scientifically, paying attention to cats. Um, but recently I realized that actually there's a lot of really interesting research being done on the domestic cat using all the high-tech uh, methods that I and my colleagues use to study lizards and elephants and rhinos and so on, from radio tracking to genome analysis to, uh, to many other approaches. And so I realized that there's a lot that we, that we know about the domestic cat, and I certainly know that there are a lot of people interested in that. So I thought I would write a book to to say what we know about where cats came from, why they do what they do, and what the future may hold. So what do we know about how cats evolved and from whom they may have evolved? Well, we know that they evolved from a species called the African wildcat. And it is a species, as its name implies, that's found throughout much of Africa and actually into, into Western Asia. And about somewhere between four and 10,000 years ago, uh, it started associating with us. Now, it occurred in the region we now call the Middle East and sometimes called the Fertile Crescent, where agriculture first began, where people settled down, built villages, and started raising crops. And when you raise crops and store them, you attract rodents. And so in turn, the wildcats suddenly had this great uh, source of food available to them. And so the wildcats that were the bravest ones, the willing, willing to be around people, uh, benefited from having these rodents, uh, having uh, you know, an ample supply mm-hmm. of food. 
Well, in turn, people saw that there was a benefit to having these cats around, so they started being nice to them, maybe putting out a little extra food or letting them come into the house to, to shelter on rainy days. And then, the, again, the boldest cats would do that, and there was sort of an evolutionary back and forth where the cats most willing to be around us uh, benefited, and then we got nicer and nicer to them, and next thing you know, you've got the house cat. So the human-cat relationship, you said, goes back about 4,000 years? At least 4,000 years. We know from paintings on tomb walls in Egypt that by that time they were domesticated. So at least 4,000 years ago, the first archaeological evidence of people associating with, uh, with wild cats is from about 10,000 years ago. But we don't know whether those cats were domesticated or just a, a wild cat that happened to start living in a, in a village. If people just tuning in, we're talking with Jonathan Lossus. He is the author of the book, The Cat's Meow. Let me ask you a couple of popular conceptions, and you could tell me if they're misconceptions or not about cats. We've always been told that cats are smart, and this is frequently something that cat owners like to point to, and they always cite evidence for. Does your research suggest that cats are indeed more intelligent than the garden variety animal or the average ordinary pet? Well, it depends what your average ordinary pet is, but there's no doubt that cats are smart. They're very smart. They can figure things out, um, and they're, they're just very intelligent animals. Um, dogs, which is normally what we compare them to, are also very intelligent in some of the same ways and some of the different ways. And it's hard to, you know, it's hard to say which one is smarter in a sense. Uh, but they're both very smart animals, and they're certainly smarter than most of the other domestic animals that, uh, that people associate with. And so you're not going to weigh in on the cat versus dog intelligence debate? Well, of course, cats are smarter, but uh, <laughs> I was trying to, to be a, a diplomat here. One of the other things that cat naysayers always point to is that cats seem to have a certain arrogance about them. Is that true? Well, they are very independent-minded, unlike uh, unlike dogs, which are just uh, they just have to have a constant attention and, and approval. And so, in that sense, they could come off as some people might consider them arrogant. On the other hand, I think many people who love cats uh, feel that to get a cat's affection, you've really earned something, that you've you've really accomplished something. Whereas a dog will be friendly to anyone. Uh, so it, it kind of depends on your point of view. How do cats communicate with either one another or with other species, namely humans? Well, this is uh, one of the really interesting things that I discovered when I was doing my research for this book. I had always thought that cats communicate with each other by meowing back and forth. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they meow to us simply meant that they were including us in their social circle, treating us as honorary cats, if you will. But it turns out researchers who have studied colonies of cats living outdoors that associate with each other, they found that cats very rarely meow to each other. They, they make other noises, they hiss and growl and so on, and they certainly have lots of body language that they use, but they don't meow. And so the fact that they meow so much to us is something that they picked up during the process of domestication. It's an adaptation that they evolved to, to communicate with us. Wow. So only only domestic cats that live in a household with humans are meowing. And uh, if they're outdoors, they're if they're stray cats or feral cats, they don't generally meow. Well, they do meow, it turns out. And it, and in fact, most wild species of cats, there are many small wild species of cats and they all meow. 
But they don't do it to communicate to each other. They don't talk to each other by meowing, if you will. That uh, They just meow in, in a variety of different contexts. To be honest, we don't know why they meow, but they're pretty clearly not communicating with each other by doing so. One suggestion that I've heard, and I believe you cover this in the book, on the subject of meowing, is that they they learn this to resemble the cries of a distressed infant in order to convert a human response that you might get for a, an infant that's crying. Do you well, give any credence to that? All right. So th- th- this is really interesting. Um, it turns out we're, we're, we need to talk both about meowing and purring. Right. That, which was my next question. Yeah. yeah. So, so starting with the meow, um, the, the African wildcat also meows, but the domestic cat's meow is shorter and higher pitched. And when scientists have played uh, meows of the two species to people, not telling them which one they, they were, people could easily tell them apart, and they rated the domestic cat's meow to be much more pleasant to listen to. They found that the African wild cat's uh, meow was, was kind of discordant and unpleasant. And so apparently uh, domestic cats have evolved to change their meows in ways that is more pleasing to our ear. And these scientists suggested that Humans have a predisposition to like higher pitched sounds because infants are, and hmm. children have higher pitched voices. Um, so that was suggesting what uh, what you what you suggested. The cats are essentially manipulating what we the sounds that we like. But it's really interesting when when you think about how they purr, because it turns out that domestic cats purr in two different ways. One purr is the one that when the cat's sitting on your lap and you're stroking the cat and it's very content, the very soft strumming purr, purr, and everyone knows that. It's a very, uh, it's a very soothing sound. But there's another purr they make when they want something. And anyone who has, uh, picture yourself in the kitchen opening a can of wet, of wet food to give the cat. And the cat is rubbing up against your leg and making a very loud, insistent, a, a chainsaw like broom, broom. It's a very loud and demanding purr. And again, people can tell them apart and they find the contented purr to be much more pleasing. However, scientists did a digital analysis of the audio spectrogram, the components of the two types of purrs, and they found that there was just one added element in the insistent, the loud insistent purr, and that element has many similarities to a human baby crying. Hmm. Now, when I read this paper that reported that, I thought that was ridiculous. I mean, sure, I could believe that there are differences and you could identify it with computers, but to say it's the same as a human baby crying, it just struck me as absurd. But the scientists actually made their audio files uh, available online, and so I listened to them. And sure enough, when you listen to this purring sound, you can sort of hear a baby crying in it. And, of course, humans are innately predisposed to to detect and respond to the sound of a human baby crying. It's something that has obvious evolutionary advantage. And so apparently, again, the cats have evolved in a way that they can communicate with us by taking advantage of our pre-existing disposition to pay attention to this sound. That is really interesting. Now, when the the first type of of purr that you mentioned, when they're sitting on your lap and you're and you're petting them, the conventional wisdom has always been that's an indication of them being content and pleased. Is that what your research suggests? Uh, yes, that for the most part, that's 
That is true, although they do actually purr in a variety of other circumstances. Sometimes when they're stressed out, they will purr as well. Um, but mostly when they're purring, it's because they're, in, they're happy. Got it. Okay, now let's talk about the other side of the spectrum, hissing. I don't think I'm going out on a limb here in noticing that cats are hissing when they're distressed. Some people have said this is a defensive mechanism. Other people have said this is offensive, designed to intimidate. Other people have said it's a, an indication of some sort of an anger that the cats have. What, what do we know about hissing? I think it's a, a, a uh, an attempt to deter a predator or something that's scaring them. They're trying to make themselves seem more scary in some way by making a a loud, discordant noise. Uh, I mean, interestingly enough, many animals hiss. Uh, snakes often will hiss as well, and so I, I think that this is a sound that is an attempt to make themselves seem dangerous and say, basically, leave me alone. How do cats know to go in the litter box? Now, that is a good question. Um, I don't know the answer. It is a innate uh, behavior of theirs that they they want to to do their business in in litter or sand or material like that. And it's just it's just a, a in, ingrained behavior. It, can the same be said for why cats seem to like boxes so much? Now, that is another good question. And, you know, you might think that this is, has something to do with domestication. They start living with us, and we have boxes, and for some reason they decide to sit in them. But it turns out that just about every species of feline, you give it a box and it will sit in it. And you go on YouTube, you can find lions and tigers and leopards. They all love to sit in boxes. And why that is, really, we don't know. Some people have said, well, they feel safe in there, they're protected. But why would a lion or tiger need to feel safe? Right, right. That's what that's what I've always wondered. If uh, you're just tuning in, we're talking with Jonathan Lawsus. His book is The Cat's Meow. It's available on Amazon or wherever books are available. Why are cat breeds so similar to one another when there's so many huge differences between dog breeds. I mean, if you compare a Shih Tzu to a Pit Bull, they almost look like like aliens from one another. They don't even look like they could be considered the same type of creature. You don't see that same sort of range when it comes to cat breeds, do you? Well, not as much. You do see some, but many many cat breeds only differ in the length of their hair or how wavy they are or the color of their hair. So you're absolutely correct about that. Uh, there's two possible reasons, well, three possible reasons why you see so, many, so much uh, more variety in dogs. One is dogs were domesticated a lot earlier than cats. Estimates are from anywhere from 15,000 to maybe even as much as 40,000 years ago. So it's possible that it's just a matter of time. Uh, another thing is that many, many dogs have been shaped by our breeding for specific things that they do for us. Mm. You know, that uh, dachshunds go into burrows or used to go into burrows to chase rabbits and ferrets and so on. And other dogs are bred for other purposes, whereas cats mostly, there's no working class of cats like working dogs at a, a dog show. And then the third possibility is perhaps just genetically dogs had the ability to evolve more than cats. I don't think that's true, but it is, a, it is a possibility. One of the things that you've done is study the roaming behavior of cats, I believe stray cats specifically, using GPS. What did you learn about the behavior of cats through your study of their roaming? Well, so 
So uh, this is actually not my research, but other people have done this. But but I have done a little bit myself because these days you can buy uh, trackers and just put them on your cat. Mm-hmm. And so I've I've studied my own my own house cats to see where they go. Um, but there's actually a brilliant study based at uh, North Carolina State University in North Carolina that got people to to put these trackers on their own cats. So it was a, a citizen science project. And so they gathered data on a hundred, uh, sorry, a thousand pet cats uh, in several places in the United States, in England, Australia, and New Zealand. And what they found is that most pet cats, when they go outside, they don't go very far. They m- maybe go a couple houses over one way or the other and have a very small uh, range that they traverse. But a minority of the cats will cover immense amounts of ground. Uh, the, the record is one cat that had a range of four square miles that it would cover sometimes just, just in a, a few days. And so most cats don't go very far, but a few of them go quite a, a far away. Now, in contrast, scientists have studied both feral cats and other species of felines, of small felines, and they go much further. They can have what we call a home range of as much as 25 square miles. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I guess uh, maybe uh, domestic cats know they have it so good. Where are they in such a hurry to go? (laughs) That's exactly it. I mean, they don't need to go looking for food, really. I mean, they might go hunting, but they're not desperate for it. Also, most pets in the United States are neutered, so, you know, they don't have a sex drive. Right. to get them moving around either makes it makes sense why do some stray cats get along well with humans and others don't they either seem skittish or they they're afraid or outright hostile to humans well i think there's two two factors that play a role one is that cats just are different they have different personalities and probably a lot of that has to do with their genetics um, but the other amazing that a cat that grows up and doesn't interact with humans is never going to be very friendly, um, very rarely. I can't. I shouldn't say never. And it turns out that there is a critical phase during their development that when kittens are about three to ten weeks of age, if they're not handled and if they don't interact with people, they will very rarely become very friendly cats. They'll be afraid of people. Whereas cats, um, kittens that get a lot of handling can be very friendly, well-adjusted cats. So one reason that that stray cats differ in their friendliness is some of them actually were, were raised with people or around people and then subsequently were dumped somewhere or ran away and got lost, whereas others just didn't have that experience. As far as the lifespan of a cat, what is the real difference between the average lifespan of a, a cat that's allowed to roam outdoors and one that's kept inside? Well, there. That's a very interesting question. There is a statistic that you will read on the Internet all, uh, often that says that an outdoor cat has an average lifespan of, say, five years, and an indoor-only cat has a lifespan of 17 years. I'm not sure that I believe that. That's mm-hmm. a pretty huge difference. Absolutely. Yeah. On the other hand, outdoor cats, if they're living all the time outdoors, they're, they're vulnerable to being run over by cars, being eaten by coyotes and other things, plenty of diseases. So it... it that number seems pretty different to me, but certainly outdoor cats, depending on where they live, they can have a lot of things that will cut their life short. Yeah, I would. Uh, that makes sense. What is the biggest mystery surrounding cats, their behavior, their evolutionary history, or anything at all? When it comes to cats, what's the biggest mystery? The biggest mystery. Now, that is an interesting question. 
Um, well, I, you know, personally, it's just what is going on in their minds. I mean, I would love to actually be able to read the mind of a cat or, or really talk to them and figure out what they're what they're thinking. They're very intelligent animals, but it, they're there are they are an enigma because they don't wear their hearts on a sleeve like dogs do. And so, just what what is their view of the world when they're sitting around just turning their heads slowly left or right? That that's what I would really like to know is the, what's going on inside their heads. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. As far as the relationship between humans and their pets, a lot of a lot of owners insist that when a cat rubs up against their leg or something along those lines, that that's a demonstration of love and affection. Can we tell if cats actually love their humans? That, you know, it's so the question, of course, what does love actually mean in terms of, of an animal? Um, and there, there are some interesting studies, uh, mostly on dogs, where when a dog and a, so let me step back. When they say a mother, a human, a, a human mother and her baby look each other in the eyes, both of them will have a surge of secretion of the hormone oxytocin, which has sometimes been called the love hormone. And it's, uh, the idea is that, that it's a reaction that helps a mother's uh, bond with their, uh, with their children. Well, it turns out that when uh, humans look into the eyes of their dogs, the same thing happens, both to the human and the dog. And so, you know, I think that's kind of evidence of, uh, should we call it love? I'm not sure, but of a bonding between, between a human and animal. There is some evidence that the same thing happens with humans and cats. It's been studied much less uh, intensively, and the data are, are, aren't great, but it suggests that the same thing may, may happen with humans and cats. So I think that that's one way of knowing if they love you. I think it is correct that when cats are rubbing against you, that is a sign of affection, although what they're doing as well is they have, uh, they have glands all over their body, on their face and elsewhere, and they're, they're kind of marking you, putting a little uh, smell that we can't smell but they can, kind of saying, this is my human. Last two questions I'm going to ask you about. They're actually from my uh, my wife because one of our cats is uh, kind of on the last of his nine lives. He's not mm -hmm. doing too well. He's battling with cancer. And oh. she was curious, and, and I was too, when she raised this. One, do cats know when they're dying? And secondly, you know, she said, like humans, cats mourn the death of another cat or human. How can a pet owner ease their cat's mourning? when an owner or another cat dies? Well, those are interesting, interesting questions. Do they know they're dying? I would suspect they probably don't have an understanding of, of mortality. Uh, I mean, they certainly know when they don't feel well, but do they have any sense that this is the end, that they're not going to get better? My guess is probably not, but... This gets back to wishing we, we could know what was inside their heads. Um, how to help them uh, get by the... I mean, they certainly do, do 
realize when a, com- a longtime companion is no longer present, and it does affect their behavior. And again, there, there's increasing evidence that, that many types of animals experience grief in a way that's in some ways comparable to humans. And I think that includes cats. What we can do about that, well, what we should not do is go out and get another cat and bring it into the household, you know, give, give uh, Rufus a new, a new buddy. That's a bad idea. But I think just giving them a lot of attention, but also paying, paying attention to their body language and giving them attention when they want it and backing off when they don't and just trying to help them ease through it just like we do with people. Wow, it's a fascinating, fascinating book. It's called The Cat's Meow, How Cats Evolved from the Savannah to Your Sofa. Its author is Jonathan Lossus. Thank you so much, Professor Lossus. I hope we can talk again soon. That would be great. Thank you.